I'm Wendy Michelle, personal trainer and nutritionist turned researcher, innovator, and precision wellness specialist. Welcome to Whole, Healthy, and Free. This podcast is all about equipping you with cutting-edge tools and information for accomplishing your health goals and becoming your best version of you. I have collectively spent over 20 years behind the scenes in clinical healthcare, in food and supplement manufacturing, in alternative medicine, and fitness marketing. What I've seen behind closed doors and experienced in real life has provided me with an education no formal textbook would dare to write about. From it all, I learned that health is much easier than it has been presented to be. People are capable of way more than they realize. And the majority of what masquerades as healthy is commonly what actually contributes to illness. I break it all down and bring it all to light for the sole purpose of giving you your power back so you can reclaim your health to live whole, healthy, and free. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to another episode of Whole, Healthy, and Free. On today's podcast, I'm going to share a few of the lesser-known details about the food and diet industry. This topic can easily go into so many different directions and can quickly become overwhelming. So today I'm going to share bite-sized pieces, and then we can dive deeper in future episodes. This is more of an overview, but it is still chock full of fun facts and need-to-knows. I'm going to start by covering a little bit about the history of food, and then we'll go into what diet is best, should you be vegan, do calories matter, food labels, like what info is on them, what is not on them, and more. Quick disclaimer, this is for informational purposes only. It's not diagnostic or to be taken as medical advice. The content is to bring light to some of the, in my opinion, too often skipped over details of the food that we're eating and how our health has been directly impacted, specifically since the dawn of the industrial agriculture and food revolution. I'm feeling a little feisty today because this topic is one that I am, potentially of all topics, the most passionate about. Mostly because despite having more knowledge than ever about how our bodies are affected by our environment and what we eat and drink, our overall health continues to decline. Commonly, people will attribute their issues of like depression and anxiety and weight gain and fatigue and diabetes and cancer and migraines and other annoying symptoms to the standard of, oh, you're just, just getting older. But if that were really true, we would all be getting older the same, right? Well, we aren't. Okay, so then the cause must be genetic, right? Except for we know that our genes are not expressed on a whim. They're expressed by instruction. See, genes turn on and off based on instructions. What's instructing them? Our external and internal environment, what we eat and what we drink, actually gives the instructions to how our genetic coding should work. So while many people don't want to change what or how they eat and would prefer to blame genetics or the number of birthdays that they've had, we know that nearly all issues from an annoying elbow issue to the lack of motivation to the bigger life-altering conditions, they can all be traced back to what we ingest. This means that adjusting nutrition has the potential to minimize or prevent 
almost all health issues that are in your way, that are slowing you down or just reducing your potential. So why is food such a hard thing to change? (laughs) Food in our relationship, I have to laugh because this is something that I just find so fascinating. Our relationship with food is fascinating and it's a, a, a great place to start just observationally. See, people will literally trade what feels good for what tastes good over and over again. They will spend their hard-earned money on food that they know that they know is harming them. Why? Why? Why do we do this? What is it about food that has us all still eating today? The same food that we swore we would quit eating last Monday. It's wild, right? There are there are some explanations that I'll get into later, but first. I do want to share a couple of statistics because I think that it helps to really solidify the importance of this conversation. So these statistics actually I pulled pre-COVID. They were um, from 2020 and 2019. 12% of Americans are metabolically healthy. So that means, if my math is right, 88% of Americans are not metabolically healthy. That is staggering. By 2025, more than half of all adults are projected to be obese. More than half. And obesity is linked to impaired immune function, and it actually triples the likelihood of being hospitalized for other conditions like the flu or COVID. More than a third of U.S. adults have prediabetes, most of which are unaware, and one out of four adults already have diabetes. 17% of U.S. adults are considered to be in a state of optimal mental health. That's only 17%. And as of 2020, 1.8 million new cancer cases are projected to be diagnosed, and it's predicted that over 600,000 of those people diagnosed with cancer will die from it. That 600,000, that's over half a million. And on average, Every 37 seconds, someone dies of cardiovascular disease in the United States. That is wild. Meanwhile, the diet industry is a $72 billion industry in revenue. And if we add in the health and fitness categories, we are easily into the trillions in revenue. So as advanced as we are in science, these statistics are not only confusing to me, but unacceptable. How is it that the more we learn, the sicker we become, and the more money the industries make? I actually think I might have just answered my own question. For the statistics, I intentionally chose these particular conditions and diseases, the obesity and diabetes and mental health, cardiovascular disease, because they are considered what is called, quote unquote, a lifestyle disease. In other words, it is the choices that people make that cause these issues. So if this is true, what quote-unquote lifestyle choices are people making that are causing such disturbing numbers? I propose that there are a few, but considering that diet is one of the main ones, we're going to start there. Personally, I prefer to not assume anything, especially about food. I want to know. I want to understand, and I have found that most of my clients feel the same way. See, my life was drastically affected by the diet industry, both pre and post illness. And the more that I sat and continue to sit at people's kitchen tables, the more I realized that all this food confusion is much deeper than should I have a keto diet? Should I eat plants? Should I? 
intermittent fast. It's, it's much deeper than this. Even the people who claim to not care about what they eat are secretly considering their food choices and trying on a diet for good measure here and there. Problems to the extent at which we have right now, they don't just happen. They actually have been growing slowly, undetected, seemingly undetected, over the course of decades. So for the sake of understanding, I think it's helpful to go back in time a bit. It was post-World War II that our country experienced a profound shift in agriculture. It was through an attempt to produce food quickly to play catch-up in order to restock the reduced supplies. Science and advanced techniques were, uh, were applied to farming with uh, an overwhelming emphasis on commodity production. So here's where we enter synthetic fertilizers, chemicals, monocropping, and chemically-assisted monoculturing. Many of the scientists, both domestic and foreign, that were previously focused on chemical warfare research shifted to agriculture chemical research once the war was over. I feel like I could stop here and we could probably just read off the list of chemicals that were introduced to the supply chain and already find many correlations between this information alone and our current day health issues. But there is just still so much more to know. Okay, so back at that time, the industrialized agriculture was considered a miracle. Food scarcity was able to be quickly turned into excess, and this required a quick advancement of food manufacturing and food processing. The research expanded again um, in laboratories. They were experimenting on how to make food more enticing and palatable, uh, easy to access, convenience, so to speak and longer lasting, so shelf life extension. The agricultural revolution became the processed food revolution. In order to sell the excess and match the level of production that was coming off the line, there were two things that were necessary. One, the produced goods would need to be something that people would want in excess that would not go bad. And the marketing and advertising designed around that would need to be very specific to ensure ongoing purchases. The marketing campaigns were designed to capitalize on post-war emotions. So think like Norman Rockwell, citing victory meant having the freedom to indulge in the luxuries that Americans had been denied during wartime. And to ensure that the produced goods would result in excessive buying, Manufacturers found that adding more sugar and more salt and more flavors and additives equated to more sales. In other words, processed food was created intentionally to be addictive. The colors, the crunch, the taste, the smell, all to manipulate the palate and the biochemical response. So the love affair with excess processed foods began, fueled by marketing aimed at emotions to ensure that more was never enough. Meanwhile, during this revolution, our soil changed. The nutrient content of food declined, human health declined, and our natural ecosystems began to degrade and erode. Now, it's interesting to me that in response to this known health decline, the chemicals, the synthetics, the processing of the food, they were actually not a focus of the possible contribu com contributing factors. Instead, macronutrients were individually demonized. And the first 
on on the chopping block was fats. Everything was uh, going downhill health-wise because fats were a problem. So then we had to take all the fats out and make everything low-fat um, and replace it with processed things that uh, did not have you know, fat grams but would have the same feel and texture and you know, bind things together the same way. Well, then it became red meat, and then red meat was demonized and for all kinds of reasons, and we will get into that in another episode. And then it was carbs and so on. Basically, with each macro enemy came a new diet trend with oh, books for days and programs and uh, you know, better ways to eat and basically more processed food, <laughs> which equated to more sales. When you have a new diet trend, it's really awesome to be able to plaster that on the front of the package so that people, while they don't really know what you said new trend is or maybe the science behind it or, or, or why they're eating it, they just know the name and, and then it goes in their cart. So fast forward to today. Now people are emotionally tied to their favorite products. This is a fact. Whether people want to admit it or not, it is true. I jokingly but seriously say that talking to somebody about whether or not they should have Diet Coke is essentially crossing the line into, like, say, politics or religion. It's just something they are not, they just, they, they will not give it up. Um, and that could be anything. I mean, plug in your favorite childhood whatever in there that is, you know, something that you quote-unquote indulge on. Um, it's something that people grew up with, it, that they love, and they just can't stop eating or drinking it. Regardless of the ramifications, they hold tight to their bond with that particular product. I know Coca-Cola has done so many different ad campaigns where it directly ties your happiness to their product. And you know, there's a lot of other examples of this in the, in the marketing of food and beverage. I find this aspect of food and humans to be very fascinating because never before in the history of humans that I know of would people naturally gravitate towards harmful substances and then continue to go back for them over and over again. We have, we've been designed to, to kind of assess our food supply and go, okay, that's, I think, poison. So, you know, I tasted that was bitter and you know, I threw up afterwards, so I'm not going to have that again. And then we don't typically go back. We don't, you know, keep going back to those things. But never before in history of humanity that I'm aware of was the poison covered up with sugar, salt, and flavoring and delivered as an emotional remedy. So going back to this statistic list that I had where I listed the lifestyle diseases, I had mentioned that they were considered that because the diseases are due to a choice of the individual. But what if the choice was being unknowingly influenced? Like what if between marketing, branding, formulation, biochemical interference, and trusted advisors, the pattern of basic decision-making was altered? Is it still a lifestyle choice? And if so, what percentage of responsibility should the collective influence bear? So now that we've established some of the background and you know, the history and some fun facts that I'm not sure that maybe you did know, maybe you don't know. I want to move on to talk about some of the current frustrations that many people feel when it comes to diet and food. And we're going to move through things quickly because as I said at the beginning, this is, this topic of food could, I mean, it could have its own show with seasons and seasons and seasons. 
of episodes, but I think people are overwhelmed and they just want to get to the quick fixes and facts. So that's what we're going to do today. So a lot of times people feel frustrated and they ask me often, and I, I believe this is the, probably the most commonly asked question of my entire career, what diet is best? And I actually wrote a book about this because uh, it just came up so often. I thought I got to just put this on paper because I, it'll just be easier to just send people that way. I actually consider myself an anti-diet and pro person person. Uh, if there was one diet that worked, we would have found it by now. Diets, as they've been created, uh, they, they don't actually work. They, they, never, they never have worked, which is why we keep changing it. And we keep changing the script and introducing new things. See, nutritional strategies work. And that's what I teach is this, how do you strategize nutrition? And everyone has different needs. They have different time availability. They have different goals. They have different budgets. Their family needs. The, we can talk genetics now. This actually plays a, a, a role. Um, different conditions, health issues, uh, hormones, personal beliefs and ethics and allergies, all these things play a role. And with so many variables, it's no wonder that everyone is so confused. Now, there are some best practices for nourishing your body, but there is no best diet unless it is one that is designed precisely for you, which is why I wrote the book. And it's why I do what I do. It's an element of precision wellness. It's about looking at the individual and the needs of the individual specifically. I will give some best practices basic best practices that everyone can benefit from a little later in the episode. And I also just want to add while we're on this topic as a quick side note, can we please just start letting people eat without grilling them about why they're eating that or if they've thought about this? Like nutrition is a very personal decision. In fact, if it wasn't such a social event, I don't think anybody would actually really talk about it. <laughs> it isn't supposed to be a club. It isn't supposed to be another reason to be included or excluded. We actually need to champion each other to accomplish their personal best. And if they feel good and their health is good, what does it matter if they're just eating raw fruits and veggies? I, I mean, I don't feel like we need to convince each other to hop on our diet anymore. I think that, I think that, I hope that we've evolved past that. And that what works for one person is actually poison for another. And we need to just move beyond the uh, I know best about what you should eat conversations. I think that it's time. It's just time. Another common frustration that people have around food is should I be vegan? Should I try keto? This goes back and those are just two examples of, I don't know, 12 main ones. And this goes back to the what diet is best question. Now, I could argue for or against every single diet. Literally, you could put me on both sides of the table and I will win against myself <laughs> because there are pros and cons to all of them. There are some people who must have meat for reasons that we don't scientifically actually know why yet, other than that they function best that way and they achieve optimal wellness that way. There are some people who need to really support healing and de their detoxification pathways. And meats, specifically industrial meats, are actually not conducive to their current goals. And I also just want to add here, we do have to have a whole conversation around plant-based diets, but I, I'm going to have to come back to that because I'm not sure how much time I have. But the point being is that it really boils down to the individual and the individual person's needs more than it does this diet being right or holier than another diet. 
I'm also asked often about how many calories should I eat. So this topic also kind of needs its own podcast because there is a lot to teach about what a calorie actually is, which most people don't know or understand, let alone how many of them you should have. So I'll save the science of the calorie for our fitness episode, which is coming up in a couple of weeks. But I may as well add here that what matters more than calories and more than macronutrients, you know, fat, protein, carbs, alcohol, is the micronutrient content. When you are hungry, your body is in search of nutrients. People are mostly overfed and undernourished. It's not necessarily a caloric quest. It's a nourishment quest. It's the density of vitamins, minerals, essential fatty acids, enzymes, etc., that the body is, is crying out for. I've had clients that gained weight on strict caloric deficit diets, but then got shredded when we stopped counting calories and started incorporating nutrient-dense whole foods. I mean a complete shift of body composition in record time. And this is where the diet industry has done a great disservice for humanity. Because calories matter, they are a variable, but certainly not in the way that society has been trained. Another area that a lot of people seem to be confused and overwhelmed is when it comes to food labels. So I want to just start by saying, try your best to not buy food that has a label. That is a very basic, easy, general rule to follow. Is it what's likely going to happen? Probably not, because people do need the convenience of just grabbing something. And if it's packaged, it's required to have a label on it. So if you must buy packaged food, skip don't just don't even look. Don't look at the front of the packaging. That whole that is all marketing. It is all designed to appeal to all your senses and emotions. If you want to decide if what you're choosing is good for you, you need to turn turn that pack, pull off the shelf and turn it around and look at the back. Remember that the food and diet industry, they are industries as in big business. For the most part, the people making the food did not make it with you in mind except for how you will consume it or how much they want you to consume it. So remember that you in this moment of holding the food in your hands and looking at the label, you are your own advocate now that it is truly in in every way it is that is in your hands. You need to look at the ingredients. Could you remake it with the ingredients that you have at home or could you buy those ingredients? Um, If not, if there's, I think people generally know there's words on there that they don't understand. It's probably not great. It's not always the case. But again, we'll have to expand on that later. Uh, Is it genetically modified? Um, Does it say healthy on it? Because how the FDA defines healthy is not exactly the same way I would define healthy. Uh, Does it say natural? And again, how the FDA defines natural is not exactly the way I would define natural. Uh, there's um, very specific verbiage in the way that food labels must be presented in order to accommodate the guidelines. And the guidelines are not based on, you know, did this come from a local source? And do you know the farmer? And uh, did it, has, has it been minimally processed? Those things are not really part of the equation of natural or healthy by, by definition of the FDA. So that's what's on the food label. And that gives you kind of a basic overview. Maybe you knew all those things. But I think what most people don't know is what's not on the label. And just like when you're communicating with other people, 
if you can listen to what they're not saying, you'll actually get a lot more information than if you focus on what they are saying. This rule applies also to food labels. So what's not on the food label? Processing agents are not listed on the food label. These are ingredients that are used prior to production. They're things that help to adjust the pH. So if you want a shelf-stable product, you have to add chemicals to adjust the pH in order to maintain shelf life. There's also stabilizers and a couple of other approved agents that are added to our food that are known to be disruptive to the microbiome. We will get to that as well later, the microbiome, our gut health. Glyphosates, the, the food label is not going to tell you about glyphosates, and these are actually classified as probable carcinogenic to humans. And this is according to the International Agency for Research on Cancer and the World Health Organization, the France-based cancer research arm. Glyphosates are sprayed on the foods, they are in the food, they are in the water, I mean, they're everywhere. And they are breaking down the tight junctions of our intestinal wall. And, and it happens on contact as soon as you consume the food or consume the, the, whatever is carrying the glyphosate. And that leads to digestive issues and neurological issues and conditions like mood issues, mood imbalances, brain fog, memory, um, sometimes like an inability to control limbs, like shaking, twitching, stuff like that. Immune system imbalances actually occur because of this as well. And hormonal and neurochemical imbalances also are a fallout of glyphosate exposure. They contribute to an inflammatory process um, in which your body, body's protein, your immune system has a hard time distinguishing between self and foreign invader. And so this contributes to autoimmune type conditions like celiac disease and thyroid conditions and joint diseases and asthma. All, all that stuff. So glyphosates are really important, but that's not listed on the label. If you're consuming something organic, you are doing much better to minimize your exposure to glyphosates, much better. Uh, it is definitely worth the investment. Uh, chemicals and synthetics that are used while the food is being grown, you know, uh, used from, in this food from seed to harvest, those chemicals and synthetics are not listed on the label. It also doesn't show what chemicals leach from the plastics and the containers that are used when the product is being cooled and also when the product is um, you know, being held in the store for you to, to purchase and take home with you. There are lots of things in plastics like BPA. This is something that a lot of people have heard of before. It's also known as um, bisphenol A, and this has been linked to cancers and infertility and endocrine disruption and obesity. There's phthalates, which are also endocrine disruptors, hello hormones, hormone imbalances, styrene, which is a known carcinogen, and graphene oxide. This is a newer one, and it's quite concerning. Uh, it's not just in the packaging, but it's in products as well. These things are not listed on the food label. There's a, a, a little, like a less known processed food issue. Mm, these are emulsifiers. They're not listed on the label as an emulsifier, you might see them listed as like soy or egg lecithin, um, canola oil, carrageenan, gums. These are all emulsifiers. And essentially what they do is they, they limit the gut's ability to identify what is actually in the food. And this is really important because our gut is giving a lot of information to our brain and then our brain releases chemicals in response to that. It actually 
based on what the gut says, the brain says, oh, okay, we're good. We don't have to eat anymore. And then, uh, you know, you're not hungry. You feel satisfied. But these emulsifiers actually disrupt that signaling process and, and your brain doesn't know that you've had enough to eat. So you don't feel satisfied. So you actually keep eating. And it also shuts down a digestive hormone that, that turns off uh, the recognition of knowing whether or not you've eaten enough. So maybe it recognizes that you've eaten, but it doesn't feel like it's enough. And that's why these bags of products, the processed items, you could just keep eating them forever and ever and ever. Whereas if you were to sit down with like avocados and you just peeled out over an avocado uh, and, you know, ate the whole thing, it's m- m- maybe unlikely that you'd have a desire to break open another avocado. I suppose it depends on how much you love avocados. But essentially, it's the difference between a processed food product and nature is that all the signaling components are intact. We, our body knows nature and nature knows our body. They have grown up together. They've evolved together. They, just, they speak the same language. As soon as you start adding these other chemicals and synthetic items and processing agents into the food, it's like they don't know, they, they, things get lost in translation, so to speak. So these are things that are important to know. And again, most of the time by choosing organic foods or just simply going to a local farmer's market and or growing your own food is going to eliminate all of these, at least to the, the, the best extent that we can. So when you are buying packaging or packaged foods, if you have to buy, if you have to buy packaged foods, um, it's important to, to know that these things are there and to look for an organic label. You know, is it organic? And again, I could also spend a whole episode on talking about organic labeling versus non-GMO, and we will get to that. But for now, just stick with real food and uh, minimize the packaging as much as possible. Uh, another area of frustration for people is the cost, the how much it costs to choose healthy things. And yes, yes, food that has been properly and ethically sourced, that has been manufactured by people who care about the health of the consumer, that are produced without the cheap and easy preservatives are more costly. Why is this? <laughs> well, because the industry has learned that people will allow it. And obviously, that's not the most fun conversation to have with people, but it's the reality that until consumers insist on food being grown, manufactured, processed, and packaged in a way that is in alignment with our original design, manufacturers are going to keep rolling out cheap garbage. Now, as a formulator and a manufacturer that sincerely cares, I can tell you firsthand that the costs associated with ethical practices are so insane, it's as if... It's almost as if the industry at large just doesn't want real food to succeed. The hope here is that you, the consumer, will realize that you have all the power and that you actually get to shift which way the food industry goes by voting with your wallet. If you don't buy the, the food that you know is harming you or your family and you don't feed it to your kids and instead you find alternatives or you support businesses that are concerned about these things, then the industry at large will have to adjust. See, they're going to keep making whatever people buy, whatever is increasing their profit. They're going to keep making it. But if no one is buying it and the revenue tanks, then you win. It's the way that it works. It's just at such a massive scale, it's going to require that people really start taking this stuff into consideration and realizing that we truly are what we eat. Another question people ask commonly is, does eating healthy really matter? 
that much. Mm, yes, <laughs> it is everything. We are by design. Uh, we are what we eat. All information, building blocks, everything about us is produced by way of what we feed ourselves and the environment in which we exist. If you're eating garbage, that's probably how you're going to feel. I, I know there are a lot of people that want to take it to the aesthetic conversation. Well, so-and-so has never gained weight and they eat all this stuff. Okay, that's one conversation. And we will have that conversation when we start talking about the fitness side of the industry. But as far as health is concerned, health is not determined by how much weight you have. You cannot establish uh, somebody's health condition based on what size pants they wear. And so it's really important to, to keep that in mind when trying to determine if it's worthwhile to consume healthy foods. See, so whatever you choose is up to you. And it's, you know, and it's, it's it, I mean, our, our freedom of choice is what makes this country great, right? We can all choose. But migraines, insomnia, anxiety, depression, cardiovascular disease, immune system imbalances, bloating, indigestion, painful periods, infertility, those are not just part of being human. Those are symptoms. That's actually the body trying to get the attention it needs so that it can be tended to, so that the internal infrastructure can be taken care of and that balance can be brought back to the body. So does it matter? Yes, it matters. It boils down to this. As you assess your life and how you feel overall on a scale of one to 10, if you feel like a nine, then this whole podcast, maybe it, you already figured it out. And that's awesome. I hope everybody gets to that point where they feel like a nine on a regular basis. But if they're feeling like a three or a four or a five, maybe you're not super sick. Maybe you don't have any conditions, but you don't feel like full of energy. You don't have like the mental capacity to, to deal with stress and you don't have resilience to handle what's you know, being thrown at us on just like this onslaught of information in this world today, then step one is looking at the diet, looking at what we're eating and how we're actually supporting our bodies. It's important to consider. And unfortunately, because of all of the marketing and because of the industry at large, it's been almost like minimized to these like non-essential things like, oh, I don't really care about how I look. Like, I don't, I, I don't need... I'm not worried about my weight or I'm not worried about, um, you know, what size I wear. Or I'm not going to put a bikini. I don't know. Whatever the things are that people say when it comes to their reasons for not eating healthy aren't really relevant when, when we're considering aesthetics. It's, it's only when we go at a cellular level, are you optimal? Do you feel happy? Do you have joy? Do you feel like exhausted all day or are you looking at the clock at eight o'clock at night and going, oh man, oh, I don't want to go to bed. I feel like I just got started. You know, this day has been so productive. That's how we've been designed. That is normal and it's possible because I've seen it. I've done it and I've lived it. And I know so many people who do the same where they, they are not complaining about these symptoms that almost everybody else in the world is complaining about. So looking at the diet, yes, it is important. It does really matter that much. So here's a few immediate takeaways from all this conversation. And I, I know that I said I was going to give you information in bite-sized pieces, but I feel like that we are probably uncomfortably full at this point with all of this information. So 
um, quickly. We, I said organic. I, I, I think organic is the way to go. It minimizes all of those items that are left off of our labels to a, a relatively good extent. Make your own food whenever you can. Uh, I have a cookbook coming out, you know, shameless plug. Grab my cookbook. I don't spend a lot of time in the kitchen and I don't spend a lot of money on food. But with very few ingredients, you can make masterpieces. If you have to have packaged food, just don't be fooled. Um, find reputable companies. You know, email them. Connect with them on social media. Find out who formulated it. You know, the same way that we want to go into restaurants where like a certain chef that we've researched and followed and we want to eat their food, we need to have that same level of accountability and standards for who is making our packaged meals too. Not just in the restaurants, but who is the one formulating what we're feeding our children. If we are going to consume processed food, we really need to find out who's making it and we need to create standards for that. And I would suggest even making just general rules in your own home when you're shopping. Um, instead of counting calories or looking at the macronutrients, look at the ingredients and um, look at the company, the ethics and the standards of the company. Minimize the irritants. So that will help some if you were, were to go organic or if you were to you know, eat less processed foods. But another way to do this, and it's just an experiment, I love experiments. I'm probably going to do a lot of these little experimental challenges for you as quick takeaways. But for just two weeks, remove the irritants. What are the irritants? They are the GMOs, the glyphosate, the gluten, the dairy, the peanuts, the shellfish, eggs, and seed oils like canola oils and oils that are in plastic containers. If you remove those from your diet for just two weeks, so that means, you know, if you're hungry, have an avocado or have an apple or have you know, there's a lot, have some steak, I don't know, but just minimize the, the irritants just for two weeks, see how you feel. If you don't feel any better, then I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> then, it, then you just must be doing really good and that's awesome and I'm really happy for you. Um, sincerely, I hope everybody feels awesome. I want everyone to feel good. But just try it for two weeks and see what happens. See what things might be irritating you that you didn't realize and, and create a checklist of mood and sleep and energy levels and body composition just by way of how your clothes fit. You don't have to do anything fancy. And just see what happens. That's something that's not going to cost you anything. Uh, it's not going to disrupt time at all. It'll actually probably save you some time um, because you just need to grab things that, that nature provides that are organic. And then another quick takeaway, which I think is an important one that a lot of people don't cover, and I'm surprised because I think it's one of the most profound ones. Uh, is to check on your relationship with food. And what I mean by that is understand that you and your body are in this long-term relationship. <laughs> Y'all have been together from your very first breath and you guys are going to be together until you close your eyes for all eternity. In the in-between, there is this relationship that's going on. And it, it's important to make sure that you, that you don't let the relationship between you and your body be a toxic one. So imagine it like this. Imagine if you had a friend and your friend was like, hey, hey, be alert and have energy and, and, don't, and, and make sure you can remember all that information and don't be wrinkly and don't be fat and hurry up and grow more hair and try to feel happier, damn it. But this friend that demanded all this of you did nothing for you in return, actually took sleep from you, actually fed you with garbage, actually like basically prevented you from doing all the things that they're asking you to do. They were in the way. Imagine how long you would stay in that relationship. 
I mean, I personally, I would not have anything to do with that relationship because it is so one-sided. But this is the relationship most people have with their bodies. They want their bodies to perform. They want them to not be wrinkly and not be fat and grow more hair and, you know, be fertile and all the things. But there's no give and take. There's no, okay, body, like here is some healthy, nutrient-dense food for you. I know that you need these nutrients to support what I'm asking of you. Okay, body, here's some extra sleep. Okay, body, here's some moments of meditation, some grounding in my feet in the dirt and, you know, lighting up the, the, the neurons in my body like an electrical charge. Like those, that's a healthy relationship. Just do a quick assessment of what is your relationship like with your body and then make the adjustments necessary there as if it was your best friend because you're not getting rid of it. You probably have many more years to go with your body. You may as well, um, you know, figure out how to make it a good one from here on out. I also try to, uh, I, I would like to try, this is the first time I'm doing it, but I, I get questions a lot from clients and people on social media. And so I want to ad- always address one or two of them in each episode. And so this one I thought was really funny. And I, I don't know how many people were wondering this, but I figured it would be a good one to throw in here. Um, so one of the questions that I got was, what about the environmental issues with raising animals? Don't the farts from cows cause climate change? So <laughs> there are scientists who study this, believe it or not. They actually study the methane that comes off of the cows. And they, can, they actually have a way in which they can study it by individual cow. So cows actually offset or they, they release into the atmosphere something called biogenic methane. It is what cows produce. Um, and it's actually part of a natural biological cycle. So methane... Uh, this specifically, this biogenetic methane is broken down. Uh, once it goes into the atmosphere, it's broken down into CO2 and water. And then this water functions as a component of like water vapor, which is part of a rain cycle. And then the CO2 is taken up by plants for photosynthesis. And the, the biogenetic methane goes up into the air, but by way of nature, it actually creates carbon underground, which offsets the methane going up in the first place. It's this really cool natural biogenetic cycle. Now, fossil fuels is different. Those are like deep carbon methane. This is not biogenetic methane. This is methane like deep below the Earth's crust, and it's a totally different entity. It's ancient, and um, it's being put into the atmosphere, but it isn't in balance from, you know, it's not in balance with like a natural biological cycle. So it actually isn't broken down the same way, and um, it isn't utilized and reutilized the same way. So um, based on the studies and based on that information, um, we know that nature didn't really make a mistake. Nature knows what to do. But when we start um, pushing on nature in a way that we, we don't fully understand yet, but, um, but we you know, check it out, we can see that there is a distinct difference between fossil fuels and, um, and, and animal and animal methane. So I hope that answers the question. Um, it's, it's an interesting, fun fact, nonetheless. So next week, I'm really excited because uh, I am going to have my first guest. And um, he is a, he's a data scientist and he's also just, he's just an overall genius. He's amazing. Um, His name is Corey and he is going to help us interpret data. He's going to give us resources for quality data and teach us how to navigate this realm of quote unquote science from a position of knowledge to help us to reduce fear. So I'm really excited about that. I hope that you will join us. That wraps up our episode for today. 
There is actually still so much to discuss on this topic, but I promised bite-sized pieces. If there is anything in this content that you feel would be helpful to any friends or family, please share this with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe to my email list just so that you never miss out on new episodes and special events. And you can do so at wendymichelle.com. That's Wendy with an I, michelle.com. You can also find and follow me on Instagram and Clubhouse. I will be doing live chats about each episode randomly. And I would love for you guys to join me over there as well. I will be back next week with the new episode that I discussed. And you definitely do not want to miss this one. So thank you so much for your open heart and open mind. I know the road to becoming whole, healthy, and free can sometimes be a challenging one. But here you are. And I am so honored that you would spend your time to engage in these conversations with me. You really have been created without error, and you are capable of so much more than you have been told. Thank you for listening to Whole, Healthy, and Free. I will be back soon with another edition of the podcast. I invite you to check out my next episode once it becomes available on the Voice America Health and Wellness channel. Until then, stay focused, insist on the truth, and do not quit. You are so much stronger than you realize.